Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode, what is this? Episode 77 of the podcast. Man, I can't believe I've been doing this this long. Uh, so episode 77, so we're not a new podcast anymore, but for those of you out there who are first-time listeners, I guess I'll just explain what we do here. So basically, uh, this podcast, uh, I invite an author on to uh, discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, uh, something I think uh, you guys out there would like to uh, hear a discussion about. And uh, hopefully uh, at the end of the podcast, or even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you uh, go out and purchase the book for yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, uh, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show, and also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And uh, my guest today is uh, Dr. Colin Jones, and uh, Dr. Jones is the professor, uh, professor Emeritus of History at Queen Mary University of London and a visiting professor in the Department of History at the University of Chicago. Uh, he has published widely on French history, particularly on the 18th century, the French Revolution, and the history of medicine. His many books include The Age of Cultural Revolutions, Britain and France, 1750 to 1820, The Great Nation, France from Louis XV to Napoleon, uh, Paris, Biography of a City, and The Smile Revolution in 18th Century Paris. Uh, and apologies for the uh, <laughs> for the warning, uh, the air raid warning going off in the background. That's uh, uh, that's the, one of the uh, joys of living in a beach town. Anyway, uh, he is a fellow of the British Academy and past president Royal Historical Society. And lastly, he is the author of The Fall of Robespierre, uh, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris, which was published last November by Oxford University Press. And is the book we'll be discussing today. So, uh, Dr. Jones, thank you very, very much for uh, coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Not at all. Uh, delighted to be here. Yeah. Again, uh, apologies for the uh, the siren, the little warning siren going on the back, but uh, it's the monthly test that they do, like uh, the first Tuesday of, or first Thursday of every month. So, uh, it should go off in just a second. So, apologies to everybody out there. Um, anyway, so uh, on the note, the book itself. Uh, what made you uh, – uh, you told the story in a very unique way uh, with it seems like three different levels of analysis. Um, uh, what made you want to write uh, this book on, on the Ninth of Thermidor, the, uh, the, the, the coup against Robespierre? Uh, what, 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 was, what was the genesis of it and uh, you know, uh, what, what, drew, what drew you to it? Well, uh, yeah, no, it's a good uh, question. And um, I was coming off another couple of projects uh, and thinking I was looking for a, a new one. And, you know, this day on the 9th of Thermidor, year two, which is that's that in the revolution, French Revolutionary calendar, it's the 27th of July, 1794. It's one of the key dates of the French Revolution. Uh, you know, so if you're going to write about the French Revolution, this isn't a bad day to uh, look at. It's, it's seen as a turning point, you know, just as the 14th of July, 1789, fall, you know, fall of the Bastille, the beginning of the revolution. And then the 10th of August, 1792, the overthrow of the Louis the 16th with the, the Republic being declared. And then right at the end of the uh, um, 
decade in 1799, the advent of Napoleon. It's one of those days which really seems to be crucial. You know, you could write the history of the revolution around them. So I was attracted to it because it was important and I thought I'd, I'd, I'd like to write on it and I'd say something important about the French Revolution. But I and I was also aware that there wasn't a really close study of it for many, many years. So I thought this was a bit of an opportunity. But the other thing which really drew me to it was the drama. You know, I, I had um, obviously one one knows about what happens more or less, but uh, uh, it struck me as an incredibly dramatic day and one that would be very interesting to recount, to narrate uh, in a way which, um, you know, would be attractive and give a sense of the, the drama of, of, of the day. So I sort of hit upon a way of doing it, which uh, initially might seem might have seemed a bit odd or a bit stuntish or uh, or whatever, which was to try and tell the day in 24 hours. So I, I actually started, as uh, you were sort of indicating, at midnight on the, uh, the night of 8th to 9th of Thermidor. Um, when things are really kicking off effectively for the day. And uh, and then I take it right through in four, 24 chapters, 24 hourly chapters to midnight of the following day, uh, when basically, you know, the, it, the day is over. It's certainly over for <laughs> Robespierre. Uh, he has been overthrown. and mm -hmm. But along the way, there's been a very sort of dramatic up, up and down, in and out, uh, all sorts of uh, reversals of fortune to get there. And I wanted to give that sense of, of drama and the swift passage of time and how much relied on what happened when and where, if you like. So so I tried that. That was my, my way of trying to tell the uh, story, uh, which was uh, which which did justice, I think, I hope anyway, to the drama of the day. Yeah. Speaking of the drama, it's always sort of puzzled me that the revolution um, there's no, there's not as many um, uh, movies and and or like prestige TV shows uh, now that we're in the age of streaming and there's all these streaming services just like begging for content and you know it's just throwing money at things just you know hand over fist that there aren't more uh, productions about the revolution or I mean there's seems to be you know, or if there are, they tend to focus more on, on, on the start of the revolution in 1789 because you can use Versailles, uh, you know, and it's, and it's really pretty and all the, uh, you know, all the court intrigue and all that sort of stuff and the costumes. Um, but when it comes to later moments in the in the revolution, and especially uh, Ninth of Thermidor, things like that, there's not that many, um, you know, uh, depictions of it in media and i always found that really odd because there's so much drama and just uh uh really throughout this whole period between 1789 and 1790 uh 1794 and even you know even after with the with the uh advent uh, or you know the the, the, well, well, the coming of napoleon yeah, yeah. No, I think you're saying so much uh, fascinating detail and drama, but in some ways it is too much. I mean, I think yeah. it is a very complicated story uh, that if you don't know a bit to start with, it is actually quite difficult to put across. And funnily enough, I think the best two books, to, sorry, best two um, films on the uh, uh, on the revolution, which Scarlet really, really get you to the heart of um, of the revolution, give you a sort of insight into it, mm. are around particular moments. And one of them is the film by the famous um, French director Renoir, 
is his film on uh, La Marseillaise, which mm. was in the late, I think it was 36, 1936 or 1937. It's basically about the overthrow of the king, told from the story, from the angle of the um, of the uh, uh, the Marseillais, the Mar- people from Marseille who, who contributed to the overthrow of the uh, revolution. Um, and um, then the other one would be the film by this Polish director, Wojtyla, on uh, the, the overthrow of um, Danton, the imprisonment. Yeah. And that's a great film. You, you that's, really the one, that's the one with uh, Gerard Depardieu, right? That's a great film, yeah. That's the one with Gerard Depardieu? He's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. His finest role, I think, yeah. quite honestly. He's really, really good in it. But it's uh, very dramatic uh, and exciting. And I think somehow, you know, going in on the day does give you the chance to give the drama, but also to tell the story in a, in a way which might be intelligible, more easily intelligible, by people who don't really know the background. Yeah. Um, okay, back to your book. Uh, uh, this is really interesting. Um, talk a little bit about all the resources that were available uh, to you uh, in writing this book. I uh, you think at some point in the book, you basically... Um, you basically say this is <laughs> pretty much the most um, uh, the most detailed uh, day of the of the 18th century. Uh, you know, I mean, there's just so many historical sources to use. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I, I was lucky there, and uh, I think it is um, um, particularly the case because, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm trying to tell the story at three levels, at the level of, first of all, of the man who's overthrown, Robespierre, Mm -hmm. and a lot of work on Robespierre and the revolution focuses just on him, but I didn't want to make it just about him. I also wanted to look at the people who overthrew him in the convention, that is the National Assembly, so really work on them. And then also to make this a Parisian story, because it struck me very straight, very soon, and not, this isn't a point always picked up by historians, that this was a very Parisian day and that the people of Paris were actually out there on the streets and made him fall, made, made him be overthrown, if, if, if you like. So, you know, I was looking at a very wide canvas and... Um, you know, I was very fortunate in that it is this big dramatic day which sees the overthrow of Robespierre and then following that, uh, the attempt to uh, really uh, clean up and uh, uh, purge the uh, political um, class of his followers. Mm. So it's one of those days, it's a bit of a, you know, a light bulb moment, a bit like the, you know, the assassination of uh, JFK or the death of Elvis, you know. <laughs> so people, when they write their memoirs later, uh, that you know, they often say, well, you know, what what they were doing or what they remember of that turning point, uh, uh, if you like. So one's got all that, the memoir type of yeah. uh, material. But also, um, just a few days after the after the coup, the the man who basically ran the uh, national guard against um, uh, Robespierre, Barras, a, a, a deputy in the National Assembly, who was given command over all the national guard of the city. Um, he wrote to every one of the 48 uh, neighborhoods called sections, the sort of parts of Paris, uh, the administrative units of Paris, 48 of them. And he wrote to three major officials within each of these, uh, the, uh, the, the chairman of what was called the civil committee, which just ran normal business, the revolutionary committee, the chair of that, which ran the implementation of revolutionary legislation. And then also the commander of the b- uh, battalion, sectional battalion 
uh, of the National uh, Guard. And he said, what I want on my desk within the next few days is a very detailed record of everything that happened in your section on the 8th, the 9th and 10th of, of, um, of uh, Thermidor. And these guys wrote in, you know, so we have straight away, and they are very detailed uh, accounts of what happened, particularly on the 9th. Sometimes people give uh, accounts which go more or less every quarter of an hour in the most mm -hmm. exciting uh, periods. So you really see things close up, if you like. So that's 150, if you like, straight away in quite detailed accounts. Yeah, but then uh, also accounts that are almost German in their... <laughs> in their efficiency it's weird <laughs> you, know, yeah. you, you think of yeah. something like you think of like extremely detailed reports like okay that's that's a german thing not a french thing but uh oh, no. <laughs> but, but no. i think i think what they're trying to do is to find out what was going on was yeah. robespierre really plotting and who was involved and then the way that the revolution goes in the next year after the after the ninth of thermidor is um, an attempt to root out the supporters of Robespierre and anyone who basically supported the period of terror uh, from from uh, uh, Parisian uh, politics. So a lot of people get pulled in. There's a lot of interrogations. A lot of people are put in prison. A lot of people write their mm. petitions to be freed. And they always say what they were doing on the day. Now, obviously, we have to take that with a pinch of salt. Though, sure. You know, these are not completely innocent documents. But it does mean we've got numerous hundreds hundreds and hundreds of uh, micro narratives of at least part of the day and what i wanted to do and the challenge for me was to put those together in a way that uh, one could make a sort of narration of, mm -hmm. of the day which was multi-perspectival you know so it wasn't just what robespierre saw or did or happened to him what nor just what the people in the national convention were doing in the convention but what the city was doing what the people in the uh, in the, in Paris were hearing and doing and saying and reacting and all the rest of it. And it really allowed that sort of um, uh, narration to be done at a very finely grained, a very granular level, I think. And that's one of the things I really tried to bring out in the book. Well, uh, you certainly succeeded. It's a, it's a riveting, um, riveting narrative. And it's, it's uh, I mean, even if you know the outcome, it's, it's uh, just, seeing um the perspective from so many different quarters and different levels uh it's, it's a really gripping narrative and it um uh, it's hard to put the book down put it that way um but anyway uh <laughs> let's get to uh let's get to the man himself so uh tell us about uh tell us about maximilian robespierre um, you know what is, what is his personality like how does how does he rise, uh, to, you know, to this position, uh, you know, where he's going, you know, on the ninth of ninth of Thermidor, uh, that sort of thing. After Napoleon, uh, Robespierre is the other figure from the French Revolution who is the most written about mm. uh, person uh, in the French Revolution uh, over the years, um, and a bit like Robespierre, but probably a lot more so, in fact. There are two very contrasting camps on him. There are those who are for, who, who, who are very positive about him, and those who are horrifically and sort of totally and vehemently uh, against. And so, you know, when I came to the project, I was thinking I have my own views on Robespierre, but I'll I'll try and really formulate them by focusing on how he reacts and how he acts on that day when I've contextualized it against the rest of uh, the political elite, but also the uh, also the, um, the Parisian um, popular classes as well. 
but but you know just to give a sort of basic uh, uh, over, uh, overview of him he's really before the revolution he is a very minor provincial lawyer from the small town of Arras you know the revolution makes Napoleon uh, makes uh, Maximilien Robespierre he would be no one without it uh, and in 1789, he's elected by his uh, town, by his city, the province of Artois in Picardy, in the north there, uh, to be a member of the Estates General, which then becomes the first National Assembly. Uh, and he's, he's in power there, he's in, uh, in position there from 1789 to 91. There he really stands out as someone who consistently and very dramatically and very eloquently supports the popular cause. He's always, if you like, whistleblowing against uh, people in power. He's always looking out for corruption in government. He's always trying to support uh, popular movements for more democracy. He's a sort of great supporter of um, uh, universal male suffrage. Uh, there is a property franchise initially, but he supports uh, uh, ma ma uh, manhood suffrage, which comes in, in fact, in 1793. He, he is, um, in terms of uh, social um, um, uh, outlook, he is very, um, very liberal, actually very radical in many ways. He's, he, he wants better poor relief. He wants better education. Um, he actually supports the over, the uh, ending of uh, capital punishment, which he thinks is uh, uh, you know a thing which belongs to the uh, superstitious past rather than the future. He changes his mind on that, obviously. In some ways, I always say to my readers and uh, my readers and uh, friends in Britain, in some ways, if you, if he died in 1791, we'd remember him as a sort of great uh, social figure, forward-looking. You know, the sort of person in, in British uh, political life would probably be a subscriber to The Guardian, you know, the sort of <laughs> daily newspaper, which is always very sort of um, right on in terms sure. of its uh, left wing views. Um, but then he starts cutting off people's heads. Yeah. <laughs> 1791, he, he, there's a change of uh, regime. He, he actually changed. He, he is no longer a deputy, but he stays in Paris. He never goes back to his um, um, hometown. Uh, uh, stays resident in, in Paris, becomes more of a journalist, uh, but also supports um, the popular movement, particularly in the Jacobin Club, which is a, a big political association, the most important political association in, in, in France. And it's there that he becomes involved in the movement within Paris to overthrow the king. I won't go into that in any, any detail. But it gives him a different power base, essentially. And uh, he is then elected to the new assembly that's, uh, that's established for the new republic, the National Convention. And there, again, supports all the sort of left-wing causes, universal male uh, suffrage, uh, etc., social reform, um, um, uh, educational uh, reform, etc. But as France becomes involved in the war, war against Europe, uh, to defend the revolution. Initially, he's very antagonistic to war. He thinks um, a famous quote, which people often uh, use of him, is he says uh, to people calling for war in 1792, says, he says, no one likes an armed missionary. Uh, the thought that, you know, we're going to spread the revolution through Europe, no one would like that outside of, uh, of France. But, you know, France goes into the war and initially it goes very, very badly uh, and um, for France. And essentially they have to... Um, suspend these sort of liberal uh, freedoms which have been established by 70, in 1791 constitution uh, and have a much more authoritarian but also more radical uh, a government uh, um, headed by a committee of the National Convention, the National Assembly, the Committee of Public Safety, 
and Robespierre becomes a member of that. Actually, he's, he's elected to it exactly a year before he's overthrown on the 26th, 27th of uh, August 1793, a year before uh, the 9th of, uh, of Thermidor. And there he's associated with policies, those social policies, which you know, are important as well, but also policies of terror. So the repression of uh, uh, any sort of opposition, uh, the uh, institution and the provisioning of new uh, victims for the Revolutionary Tribunal, which uh, uh, judges people to be uh, guilty of treason on perhaps very, very minor uh, 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 effects. Now, that is really the, the sort of uh, change of direction for him, which um, is crucial in understanding why he is so both popular and unpopular. Because many people say, well, you know, he knew that the war, the victories of the, uh, the, everything, the achievements of the revolutions thus far had to be won by winning the war. And the only way to win the war was actually to, uh, to have this very strong authoritarian government and even use terror against the enemies of the, of, of the Repu Republic. So, you know, he's sort of staying true to the, the Republican mm. cause, the idea of popular sovereignty. On the other hand, there are many people who say, well, you know, he was just power crazed. He went completely uh, bonkers on it, really, and uh, and became a, the sort of um, tyrannical figure controlling um, uh, events that in many ways pe remind people and people endlessly go on on this in the uh, 20th century in particular as a sort of proto-totalitarian um, uh, dictator, you know, pre-Hitler or proto-Mussolini or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but you mentioned the terror. Sorry to interject, uh, but uh, or he gets associated with terror. But um, you note in the book that uh, what we think of as the the terror, the reign of terror, uh, that is not um, that is not something uh, they don't. The Parisians in 1793, 1794 don't think of themselves as living through uh, the terror. That's something that uh, it's retroactively. Uh, a title that's retroactively given to that period uh, by uh, the, the the leaders in the, the Thermidorian reaction, uh, which comes uh, after Robespierre's fall. Um, so yeah. uh, even though we think of the terror, uh, whatever the Parisians think of it, they don't think of it as, quote unquote, the terror at the time. Yeah, no, that, that was very much a big part of my um, thinking on uh, the way in which I should narrate the story, mm -hmm. because... Everyone, but every historian uses the term the terror. Mm. Um, but I think in the last few years, people have become, historians have become increasingly aware that this term is one that is constructed after the event. You know, people start talking about Robespierre and the terror after he's overthrown. And he's suddenly seen as a major figure in, in putting in pr practice the, the terror. And yeah. part it's of anachronistic. My, sorry. It's anachronistic, the yeah, exactly. And, you know, part of my approach really on the uh, uh, for, 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 for doing the, the book in this way was to sort of try and get in the minds of Robespierre, his opponents and the people of uh, Paris and understand what they thought they were doing. They did not think they were think living under the terror. This was a term, as you say, it's anachronistic, wasn't around there. Then. And uh, by, by thinking that way, I think it is quite helpful because you there is a tendency to give the, the terror agency, you know, the terror did this, the terror did that. And in fact, when you on the ground, you know, at the time, the terror did nothing because it didn't exist. You have to think of it in different terms. And I, I tend to use the 
the um, phrase the revolutionary government, which is the phrase that's used at the time to describe this emergency government with the constitution of 1793, democratic uh, uh, constitution temporarily put on ice. Uh, so this sort of emergency uh, uh, regime can face up to the uh, to the crisis. And the, re the revolutionary uh, government is headed by Committee of Public Safety, on which Robespierre is one of the 12 figures, and also the Police and Interior Ministry, which is called the Committee of uh, General General Security. Yeah. Uh, just back to Robespierre uh, for a quick second. Uh, his personality. He's a he's a very enigmatic person, and he, it's almost like he is on a completely different wavelength intellectually than his peers, or a different intellectual plane. Not saying that he's uh, on a different plane, uh, smarts-wise, but he's just—he's—he's he's an odd duck. <laughs> he's just uh, so he's a, a strange person. But uh, you have this uh, one of the paragraphs in the book. You you write about him, his personality. Uh, I'll just read it out because I think it's instructive, um, showing about what, what sort of man he is like. And uh, you say, uh, Robespierre's impractic impracticability is notorious. He brought to his place within the Committee of Public Safety next to uh, next to no managerial or practical skills. Almost alone among prominent politicians in the convention, he had he had never even sat on an assembly committee, nor developed the skills of political fixing or quest for compromise, and of creating consensus that go with managing a committee or serving as a rapporteur. He has never really run anything in his life. Trained and then practicing freelance as a provincial lawyer prior to 1789, his expert knowledge is highly limited. His acquaintance with the culture of national relations is nugatory. He expressed, and indeed rather glories in, his total ignorance of military affairs, save for a predilection for patriotic rather than experienced generals. And he is little more than a dunce in matters financial. Indeed, he is one of a handful of colleagues who are too disorganized even to manage to collect their paycheck as deputy in person. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so it's funny that uh, this man who's not really... Um, not really run anything, not really, uh, not much of a legislator. <laughs> uh, yeah, managed, I, I, think, uh, I mean, I think this uh, this sense of him as someone who's sort of slightly out of out of touch and out yeah. of uh, otherworldly, if you like. Yeah. I mean, the, the quote I I think I use in uh, the passage near the passage which you you cite, which his great you know friend, but then rival Danton said of him. You know, the thing about Robespierre, he couldn't boil an egg. You know, he doesn't yeah. he's impractical. His sister later in uh, life writes memoirs of him in the 1830s, looking back, and she says he was so absent-minded. He'd be sitting reading so intently at the dinner table that, you know, he'd move his soup plate just as someone's putting a ladle of soup and it went all over the table and things like that. He's that mm -hmm. sort of guy. Yeah. He's very impractical, but what he has is a voice and a vision. And I think, you know, that's what he does in the, more than anything else. You know, the 12 men who sit around this table running France during this terrible emergency period, you know, they all chip in. But uh, and but insofar as there's a division of labor, what Robespierre does most is speak. He's the great sort of legitimator of the policies of revolutionary government, even the use of terror, but also the use of the other radical social uh, legislation uh, as well. But. You know, so I think that's the first thing. But the other thing which is very striking about him, you see see this right back to 1789 and indeed a bit earlier as well. 
is that um, he thinks of uh, himself and the revolutionary cause and the people as one. You know, so he sees he sees the himself as somehow embodying both the people of France and the revolution that the people of France uh, are making. And I think that gives an incredible oratorical power to his words. You know, he, he has this, even though he's really not a very good speaker, he's sort of short and um, short-sighted and um, you know, rather rather ineffectual type of voice, not a loud voice or anything like that, not commanding gestures, etc., etc. But he's so intense and so intent, if you like, uh, on the on the cause that he 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 sort of mesmerizes people and becomes actually, even though he really rejects the idea of it, a celebrity. You know, people are saying that um, this is the moment in uh, but. Western culture, you know, you see it in America and England and France, the, the, the sort of proto-celebrity emerges, the sort of, uh, not someone who's not just famous, but famous and has that celebrity status, that aura in which people feel very strongly either for or against him. You know, he has fans, if you like, people write fan letters uh, uh, to, 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 to Robespierre. And I thought this was, you know, when going in and trying to get my own take on it and, and I should say that when I'm doing most of the research on this, I deliberately left Robespierre to, to last thing because I think he has that, he's a bit of like a black hole, you know, he sort of yeah. sucks you in once you start <laughs> talking about him. And I wanted to get the other stories straight about the day before I went into to his day. But I, I found him very, very sort of interesting in that sort of, sort of uh, uh, way. And what I sort of increasingly got a sense of him was that he was um, a tragic figure, not tragic in the you know, sensational way, but tragically in the way that Aristotle or Shakespeare would have thought about it. You know, and in fact, that this is a very, this is like a tragedy this day. You know, it's, it, it observes those unities of time, uh, space and action, Paris that day. You know what happened within it, uh, which you know you would see in a great uh, a, a great tragedy. But the other thing is, you know, like a Macbeth or something like that. You see someone who has great status, you know, and high high esteem in in the world, and then it's a fall from grace. It's a sort of you know tumbling down uh, into ignominy and overthrow. Uh, and that that's the sort of way I ended up with Robespierre, thinking that the things that brought him down at the end were the sort of things which made him, you know, seen as great uh, earlier on, in particular, this sense of embodiment, you know, because a lot of people, a lot of his colleagues are saying, well, you know, he's completely self-obsessed. You know, he sees the revolution and himself as so identified. He has no time for anyone who doesn't disagree with him. Anyone who disagrees with him is an enemy of not just him, but of the revolution. You know, and this is making him impossible uh, as a colleague. And so those those faults, if you like, are also the things that the factors in his uh, the features of his personality, uh, which made him such an important and positive force earlier on in the revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned you wanted to get to Robespierre last in, in the book, uh, because of his tendency to be <laughs> a black hole. But uh, like you said, your book is really uh, more uh, more a book about Paris than about the Ro uh, than about Robespierre himself. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Paris uh, at the time. Uh, what is the city of Paris's role in the revolution? And then also, what is a normal day in Paris like at a, at, 
at this time in, in 1794. You know, uh, everyone, you know, even I mean, pretty much every member of the, the National Convention and the and the Commune and uh, maybe even Robespierre himself himself is expecting uh, the ninth of Thermidor, you know, they wake up on the ninth of Thermidor expecting it just to be a, a normal day, you know, <laughs> not, uh, not one that people are going to remember forever. Uh, so yeah, like, uh, like I said, what is, what is Paris's role in the revolution and when, what, what is a, a day like the average day in Paris, like at this time for just the, the average Parisian? Yeah. If, can I start with the first question, though? Yeah, Paris sure. Go ahead. Revolution. Yeah, because I think that is an important, very important thing about the revolution and indeed about uh, Paris, because really from the, the, the day that the, began the revolution to all, um, you know, in all the history books is the 14th of July, uh, 1789, when Parisians overthrow the Bastille and force the king to accept a constitution, accept the elections uh, to a, a, a national uh, assembly. And from that moment on, Paris is really the leading edge of, of revolution. It's almost the most, uh, uh, the most radical. It pushes further uh, towards um, uh, radical policies than anywhere else. It is the, you know, it is the center of the national convention. It's where the, the national assembly, it's where the monarch uh, 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 lives uh, in 1789 to as well. So, you know, that it, it has a strategic importance and it it's Parisians who overthrow the king and it's Parisians who Force the um, national convention towards more radical authoritarian policies in uh, 17, uh, 1793, 94, and the popular, the popular classes, the 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 the, the, the working, uh, the labouring classes, give themselves this sort of uh, title of sans culotte, you know, the sans culotte, sans without culotte, without breeches. Uh, what they mean by that is, you know, anyone of any gentility. In the um, in Parisian, as indeed uh, you know, in uh, British or American society, this would normally wear wear breeches. Trousers are the are the uh, symbol of the working man. So this sans culotte movement, you know, see themselves as being the uh, uh, the conscience of the revolution, but also the, the cutting edge and the leading edge of revolutionary uh, uh, radicalism. And uh, when the day comes up and the moment comes. They will mobilize uh, hugely uh, uh, on it. But, you know, you also brought up the daily life. And I did want to get that across. I wrote a book on uh, uh, a few years ago, uh, published by Penguin, which is a Paris biography of city of a city, which tells the story of Paris uh, from earliest times right up to the 21st uh, century. So I've had a sort of long durée, a sort of long, you know, drawn out sort of uh, idea about the history uh, of Paris. And this is absolutely at the other end, you know, which is the 24 uh, hours in one particular day. And it's a very dramatic day. It's a very important day. But as you say, it's also an ordinary day. You know, people go about their business. Uh, you know, things happen at the beginning of the day, just as on any normal day. Uh, 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 you know, they get up at uh, early, they go to work. Um, you know, they read the newspapers. Um, they know there's something going on in the political uh, class. They they heard there was a bit of a, a rumpus the previous day. But basically, everything continues uh, uh, as normal. And then even, you know, it's about midday that the National Convention meets. And just as Robespierre's ally, a man called Saint-Just, is going to speak, um, the, 
uh, he is shouted down essentially initially by one man a man called Tadian who shouts him down and uh, says this is a whole you know put up job Robespierre Saint-Just and his friends are conspiring against the republic and suddenly all the political um, de- all the deputies in the assembly support him I think they've all found Robespierre increasingly difficult to deal with uh, and Robespierre is arrested and um, you know is put, uh, put away that stays really within the National Convention. It's still in the middle of the afternoon before people realize there's been a big political crisis and Robespierre has been overthrown. And then what you find from the middle of the afternoon onwards, two things. First of all, a general sort of seeping out of the information about what's uh, uh, what's happened. And then also an attempt to mobilize because um, in the uh, city hall, the municipality of uh, Paris, the commune, uh, they, they, they've been very supportive and very uh, keen on Robespierre and they start mobilizing the people of Paris, the National Guard, trying to bring the National Guard together uh, and to pressurize the convention into releasing Robespierre and actually, you know, getting rid of his enemies within the uh, convention. So through the late afternoon and early evening, you get this sort of mobilization uh, uh, going on. Uh, and then what also gives it much uh, more you know, gives it a new level of uh, drama and danger is that Robespierre and his four or five allies, they're all sent out to prisons around Paris in the late afternoon. When Robespierre gets to uh, his own prison, which is in fact a Luxembourg prison, which is the Luxembourg Palace where the uh, Senate of Paris of uh, France sits at, uh, currently, the jailer there doesn't know what to do and he, he refuses um, Robespierre entry into the uh, prison and then so essentially Robespierre is on the on the loose in Paris and he goes initially to the police administration headquarters and later to the uh, to, to the commune the, the national convention had broken up after arresting uh, 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 and sending to prison Robespierre about four o'clock four or five o'clock in the afternoon they go and eat they, they they think job done. It's all over. Yeah, they re, re, resume at about seven o'clock in the evening, and they're appalled to find that people are mobilising. The commune is trying to get uh, men and cannon together. Uh, that Robespierre is out of prison and on on the loose. And then there's a sort of great um, sort of drama about how to do what to do. You know, and you've got this uh, situation where you've got two nodes. Uh, political nodes, if you like, the, the National Convention, which is in the Tuileries Palace. Tuileries Palace is no longer exists, but it's roughly where the, um, just a bit uh, to, to the west of the Louvre, um, near the Tuileries Gardens, obviously. And then the Paris City Hall, maybe a mile away, mile, mile, a yeah, mile and a bit away to, to the east. And you've got this mobilization of the forces there. And you've got a sort of stand-up develop, uh, develop, standoff developing between these uh, two forces as people suddenly are getting to realize this isn't an ordinary day. There's actually things going on. And actually, probably there's a political crisis uh, going on where the people of Paris will have to act. And one of the things I try to get across in the book is the way that people move from a, a, a sort of state of ignorance about what's going on to accepting a story, a narrative of what's going on, which is uh, essentially the story which the National Convention, the National Assembly puts out, that 
Robespierre has been conspiring against the Republic. He has been imprisoned. He is justly imprisoned. We should uh, 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 eradicate his supporters uh, in the in the city. On the other side, the, the uh, Commune is saying, well, we've got Robespierre here. You know, he's a celebrity. We've got a lot of uh, 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 troops at, uh, at National Guardsmen outside. Uh, we can march on the National Convention. But interestingly, as the news gets out in Paris about what's been going on and as the National Assembly is more effective in getting its message across, you find people making this, you know, this really life uh, uh, changing decision. Do I support the commune? Do I support the convention? And why? Um, they tend to opt and they opt en masse by you know, their feet, poked with their feet for the National Convention. So you suddenly find by midnight on that uh, uh, that day, um, nearly all the um, supporters of the commune are drifting away. People used to say, historians used to say they will go home because they couldn't be bothered. But in fact, they don't go home. They stay mobilized in the within their sections. Many, many you know, thousands uh, actually change sides and go to the National uh, Convention, defend it uh, uh, against any attack uh, and then start marching on the on the commune. And uh, in the early hours of uh, the 10th of Thermidor, uh, they they overthrow they they enter the the um, uh, city hall find Robespierre and for reasons we still discuss as historians um, Robespierre is shot uh, shot in the mouth uh, he was uh, he will go before the revolutionary tribunal and will be executed with his followers uh, from the commune uh, the next day. Do you think he shot himself? Like, you if, know, you, if you I, had to I guess, would you? Yeah, <laughs> I tell you what I think about this, uh, because the thing is, it's such an uh, there's so much evidence both sides mm. that uh, I I didn't want to stop the narrative to say, oh, let's have a think about this now. It was <laughs> shot, you know. So I, I I left it as people felt yeah. on the day. Uh, there are two stories out on the day, out on the day, out on the streets on the day. People are saying, oh yeah, Robespierre tried to shoot himself, um, tried to commit suicide, but. Uh, Early after early um, hours of, of the 10th of Thermidor, about three or four a.m., uh, the man who basically arrested uh, uh, Robespierre in the uh, in the Hotel de Lille in the city hall comes back to the National Assembly and he brings a National Guardsman and he says, "This is the man who shot Robespierre." You know, and everyone cheers him and everything like that. Now, this man, whose name is uh, Merda. That's, uh, if you know French, you know that's not a great name to have, uh, 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 surname to have. Um, but he later judge, writes an account of the uh, of the day and what he did on it. And honestly, if you read that account, you think, well, this man's done everything. Um, when you actually have read all that I've read, you know, of the, all the other documents, you think, well, this is a man who's a fantasist, actually. Mm -hmm. So I don't actually believe I'm not among those historians who are numerous and they're very good historians, many of them. Who think that he was that Merda was the man who shot him? I tend to be of the uh, variety of historian, you know, and we are divided almost 50-50 on this. Who thinks that he 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 probably did try and uh, shoot himself? But there are some problems with that story uh, as well, which I can go into if you if you'd like to a bit more. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I mean, if, if you know, if he's the kind of guy who can't even boil an egg, I mean, it. it, it leads the reason that if he were going to try to shoot himself that uh he would, he would not do it successfully you know i mean so so that seems to be in uh in line i mean the the failed attempt seems to be in line with his uh with his personality you know yeah and i, I think the, the thing which we do actually have a description of him by a cert done by a surgeon as he's lying there with a 
uh, with a sort of uh, gunshot to the uh, face. And what it seems to be interesting is that it comes, it's on the left, it would have been on the left-hand side of his uh, face as if he was uh, shot by, by holding a pistol in the left hand and from above rather than below. So it's a very confused sort of story. You would think, well, was Robespierre left-handed? We you know, had no idea whether he is or, or not. So, you know, those sorts of things uh, complicate things. But but yes, I, I totally agree. You know, if he can't uh, boil an egg, then he probably is not going to be able to shoot himself very effectively. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, getting back to the neighbor, there's one thing that sort of struck me about this whole, about this day, is uh, how improvisatorial this whole coup against Robespierre and his uh, supporters is. I mean, like I said, no one's really expecting it. Uh, Tallien gets up and speaks, and then people, other members of the convention, sort of see this as an opening to try to get Robespierre by 2 o'clock. Uh, you know, by, by 1 o'clock, uh, I mean, Robespierre's power is, is practically gone. Uh, by 2 o'clock, he's been arrested. And then, like you said, the convention breaks for dinner at 4 o'clock, saying, like, all right, well... That's done. We got that squared away. Um, you know, let's go eat. Uh, but it seems to be like at this this period in the in the late afternoon, they seem to be losing the initiative. Uh, Robespierre is released from prison, and uh, other members that have been arrested are released from prison. Uh, you know, and nothing is for certain yet. Everything is up in the air at this point. And um, <clears throat> you know, there's a point I think around seven or eight that. Uh, uh, the commander, uh, well, he's technically been relieved of command, but he's still acting as commander of the National Guard. I believe he's commander of the National Guard. Uh, uh, he's a major commune figure, uh, Francois Henriot. Um, he basically, uh, he, <laughs> uh, he basically backs down from putting the convention under fire. Uh, they have, you know, cannon uh, trained on, on the convention. Um, it, it seems to me that Henriot not going forward seems to be is that the pivotal moment of the day where 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 that where once that decision is made it's pretty much everything is lost for for Robespierre and his supporters yeah i think this is really what i tried to do in the book and i'm, I'm pleased you picked that up as a, so so important for the day it's the, the sense of the day being improvised they're just like many winging it. Everyone's winging it, you know. Yeah, yeah. everyone's. Many historians have all, you know, but always been attended to say, well, they were plotting against him for a long time. Actually, when you look at it, as I as I have done, I think you find people are very discontent with Robespierre. They're completely uh, hacked off with the way he's been be behaving. Mm. They don't expect that to be happening that day any more than he does, actually. And then Talian, that's I think a key thing. Talian comes in and just, you know, sort of out of left field sort of thing, as you'd say, um, attacks him in a way which suddenly it turns, every, everyone sort of rather, what's going on? You know, there's a, one of the deputies says it was like an electric shock goes around the convention. Says, oh, Robespierre is being attacked. And then they all get, it, get in on that, you know. Uh, and then the other moment, I think, I agree with you, is that um, uh, later in the day, when you've got a force of these, uh, you know, from the city hall, led by this sort of wild and crazy guy, Francois Henriot, who seems to be very um, um, unstable, essentially. <laughs> People say later he's drunk all the time. I actually don't think there's much evidence of that, but I think he's just a very wild and inexperienced and um, um, uh, sort of uh, commander. He actually is in the 
courtyard in front of the Tuileries Palace with a whole pile of cannon, a whole pile of men there. And in fact, the convention, because you know, as you say, they've come, we've, we've said they've come back not realizing what's going on, come almost completely undefended. I'm not a great believer in counterfactual history, but it is a moment. You know, if mm -hmm. Mario had dis decided then, I'm going to walk into that convention and take it over. He could have done it. He really, really could have uh, done it. It would have been bloody. There would have been opposition, but I honestly think he could have easily done it. But in fact, he chooses to go back uh, to the to, to the city hall. And I th I can understand that. You know, people say, well, you know, it shows he was drunk or didn't know what he was doing or whatever. Uh, I think actually he thinks, well, you know, we're in a situation we don't I I don't know what's going on exactly back in City Hall because he's actually been under under arrest. We've got to do this in a as legal and sort of a, uh, sort of a legitimate way as we can. And that's done best by the City Hall moving on block, you know, and making its, its demands. It would be seen too much like a military coup if he just moved in on the National Convention. So, as you say, he decides to go back to the convention, takes all those forces back. A lot of them then see what's going on and actually change sides. But those who get back are then subject to the same sort of anxiety and uncertainty about what's uh, what's going on. And also the, the, the people running the uh, city hall are very inexperienced in how to run uh, a, a, a revolutionary day like this. And then, you know, the timing, they're thinking, well, should we march on this convention now or, you know, it's, you know, it's nearly midnight or should we leave it tomorrow morning? Well, if you leave it tomorrow morning, maybe it's not going to be so effective. And I think they're very much in two minds and, and they're caught on the hop by the other great moment, which springs from Henriot, just when Henriot decides to go back uh, in the National Convention, they're panicking. They're, you know, they're, the um, the uh, president, the, the man who's chairing the assembly at that day says, we've got to die in our seats like Romans. These people are going to walk in and we should just accept our death. You know, it's going to be a, a stoical, uh, traditional Roman, uh, Roman death. But um, in fact, you know, Henriot goes back uh, they suddenly have a moment. They think, well, we've, we've got to organize. And they make this decision. And honestly, it is absolutely unpredicted and unpredictable. And they decide they will appoint uh, one of their own deputies, uh, this man Barras, to be commander of all the, uh, the National Guardsmen and all the gendarmes and any troops. There are very few troops, actually, in Paris at that time to give him overlordship of that. Now, that has never been done. That's never even been thought of before because the National Convention doesn't have that power. The power of policing the city is traditionally in the hands of the police forces, which reports to the city hall. Mm -hmm. So basically, the, it's a sort of coup, uh, if you like, by the National Convention against the power of the city hall. And Barras, and he straight away, it's actually quite comical, really, because... Um, he is a well-known soldier, but he, he, he says, well, thank you very much for the honor. Of course, I accept this uh, great honor, but I, I actually don't know Paris very well because he hasn't actually lived there. <laughs> yeah, do you guys long. got a map I can borrow? <laughs> so, <or? laughs> so, in fact, they, you know, they appoint 12 other deputies who are under his, um, his command. And these guys basically put on the uniform, put on the uniform of a deputy of the National Convention. Great plumed hat, great tricolor, you know, sort of all mm -hmm. the sort of and they get on a horse. And they go around all the sections of Paris and they go with a cannon and they go with uh, armed men and they go with torches and at every uh, sort of important junction and road, 
road crossing or, or you know, a, a square or whatever, they have an announcement, they read out this uh, document saying, this is what's happened, Robespierre has been overthrown, he was conspiring against. So they, they push their narrative out there into the, uh, into the Parisian uh, uh, population in a way which convinces and mobilizes, and you get this massive uh, counter-mobilization, mobilization to to uh, oppose the mobilization that the uh, commune has done, uh, which will effectively be uh, uh, be successful on the day. But uh, absolutely, I mean, I've tried to get, indicate, as you say, the, it's a very improvisational uh, day where people are just put in situations where they have to decide, they have to act. And yeah. just how they do so is often in a very unpredictable way. Yeah, I mean, the one thing uh, I brought up uh, on Rio, uh, backing down from putting the convention on the fire. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that when uh, he he is there ready to go, um, but and even before he uh, he's there ready to go before the convention issues that uh, that decree of outlawry against uh, Robespierre and his conspirators. So the the convention uh, says you know, they issue this decree that you know Robespierre and his uh, quote-unquote conspirators are outlaws and that basically anyone anyone aiding or abetting them uh, will face death and obviously when word of this gets uh, gets out when the when news of this uh, you know gets spread when this gets printed up and uh, read aloud to people it has a major effect on on the communes on the forces that are gathered uh, for the commune you know up to this point and people hear this and go Ugh, I don't know maybe I don't want to you know risk my <laughs> neck for it so uh, back to Anrio is I believe if, if he had um, taken action against the convention before the convention had issued this uh, yes. decree that maybe uh, you know the, the the commune would have retained the support it had up through that point in the day. I don't know that's yeah, just, no. you know. Yeah, no, I think that's you've absolutely got your finger on the a key um, decision of the assembly, not just to appoint uh, Bahas and uh, to get them out into the city, but also to, to declare Robespierre and the commune uh, supporters uh, to be outlaws, because that basically withdraws any legal rights uh, that they have. You know, it's not that you would be tried for treason or something or tried for political crimes. If you're declared an outlaw, you can be essentially you have you have to be identified legally. This is who, I, who it seems to be. And you could be taken out and uh, executed. Um, and you're right. I mean, this does make give people pause for thought and they think, well, the National Convention has decided this. You know, the National Convention elected by universal suffrage it is the national uh, the assembly of the whole of the French people. You know, this is serious and it affects me. You know, by then people are thinking, oh, oh getting the story from the, the, the convention, but also seeing the threat of uh, death over overhanging them if they decide to move uh, another way. Interestingly, again, I, I said that the, the city hall, the people in the city hall were very inexperienced. Uh, when they hear this outlaw decree, not the mayor, but the sort of adjunct to the mayor, there's a big assembly within the uh, city hall there and he, he says and you know um you know they've done this law um uh get, calling us all uh, outlaws but we're actually in laws we are sort of <laughs> acting legally to um 
you know, to to overthrow this terrible government, which is uh, got rid of trying to get rid of Robespierre. And of course, it has exactly the wrong effect because people think, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm here. I'm going to be an outlaw if I, I stay any longer. And so you find the, the benches start uh, start clearing. And uh, so, again, the unpredictable, the unexpected, uh, the improvised uh, yeah. is very much the order of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's just sort of funny, uh, you know, in this day of action, there's just a lot of inaction on both sides. You know, the you know, the, the convention sort of takes its sweet time, you know, getting its act together and almost, you know, has the whole thing slip from their fingers. Uh, and, you know, then the inaction of the commune, um, you know, in the early afternoon, <laughs> uh, you know, leads, uh, you know, to what eventually happens when, uh, you know, around midnight or I believe it's after midnight when the commune is finally overtaken and yeah. Robespierre and all the all, all the quote unquote conspirators are are apprehended and then the next day basically uh all of them will be executed uh, that they have found including robespierre's brother uh, you mentioned saint just and uh francois Henriot, the guy who decided not yep. to attack the, <laughs> the convention uh you know i'm sure that he was kicking himself for that um you know on 10th thermidor um and some other people but uh outside of those to be executed and i think uh, later on there's some other people they round up and uh, about a hundred people altogether are, uh, you know, go to the guillotine. Uh, yes. but other, yeah. But, uh, yep. but other than that, it's, 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 it's a pretty bloodless coup as far as, you know, coups go, you know, uh, especially like at, at, at this time in, in revolutionary Paris. No, it, it is. I, that's absolutely right. You know, considering that civil war, was on the cards. I mean, if Henriot had done that, I mean, you would probably have had a civil war situation, mm-hmm. perhaps not just in Paris, but across the uh, country, uh, actually. Um, and in fact, you can count on the fingers of one hand the people who are actually even hurt on the day. You know, there's a couple of people are shot, right. and obviously, Robespierre tries to shoot himself. His One of his colleagues, Lebas, succeeds, actually kills himself in the, the coming, but hardly any blood is spilt on, on that day. But it's followed by a day of, um, as you say, of um, legal uh, bloodletting. It's not it's those conspirators that you pointed out, the National Guard leaders as well. But also what the outlaw decree was essentially against all the commune. And there are about 150 uh, members of the commune uh, that, you know, who have been elected by all the 48 sections. And of course, over the next day, many of those are executed who didn't do anything. But what you've got essentially is people lying low and then saying, well, wasn't that the convention? Do it. Can I get off really? <laughs> you know, and not be executed? But so it is essentially chopping the head off uh, of the par- Parisian uh, sort of sans-culotte movement by uh, executing the sort of leaders of, of, of that movement within the uh, commune. Uh, the mayor uh, of Paris is one of the people who are executed. And it's, it says something about <laughs> the way in which the relationship between the French government in Paris and the city government operate is that it will take uh, nearly 200 years uh, for France to agree that there should be a mayor in Paris, and it's under the Fifth Republic in 1977, is it, that uh, Giscard d'Estaing decides that Paris will have a single mayor. Who, uh, uh, they're always worried after after Thermidor, yeah. the ninth Thermidor, about the city of Paris being a radical movement led by the city hall. Yeah, um, you write uh, earlier in the book that uh, the coup against Robespierre uh, is not just 
um, or the actions against Ribeiro, it's not just a coup among his political opponents and the elite, but it's also a collective action yeah. by the Parisian masses. Uh, but then shortly after, again, in, the, in this Thermidorian reaction, there's this um, erasure of the notion that uh, the Ninth of Thermidor is, is sort of this uh, co-production between the convention and the people of Paris. Yes, and I, you know, I, this is a very long book, and yeah. it's just one day, and I felt I couldn't go into that in the sort of detail which it deserves, but I think it is a fascinating story the next year, essentially, um, because on, on that night, you know, the 9th and 10th of uh, Thermidor, you've got uh, in the National Convention, uh, people are aware that, that it's not just the convention getting its act together, it's the people of Paris supporting uh, supporting the convention against the city hall. And uh, one of the, uh, the, the man who's chairing the, uh, the National Assembly in the early hours, Barrea, says, you know, this is, a, this is essentially a co-product. The people of Paris and the convention have saved uh, the republic. But as things go on over the next year, you get uh, a sort of weird collective political um, amnesia going on within the political class. Um, the, the, for reasons which aren't actually anticipated, again, the, the, the revolution moves increasingly to the right, uh, sees the, what was going on in year two, not just about terror, but also about social radicalism, something that distances itself from, becomes more moderate, even more right wing, if you like. And a year to a day, in fact, uh, after the 27th of July, 1794, so 27th July, 95, uh, one of the deputies, a man called Courtois, presents a report, which is based on many of those reports that I talked about before, mm. on what happened on 9th of Thermidor. And the narrative is basically the convention won the day. And the people of Paris and its role in that day is erased. And, you know, I think it's a... Um, you know, I said in some ways the day is a tragedy for Robespierre, this fall from high estate to, you know, death within uh, 48 hours sort of thing. Um, but I also tried to give the sense of this is a, a moment of, you know, a rising arc of political awareness, if you like, on the Parisian population, that this is a revolution that was worth saving. What you find thereafter is from this moment in which people and government and, you know, National Assembly to be seem to be all lined up among themselves just falling apart, fragmenting over the previous year, mm. and a move against the right, a move against Paris, a move against the popular movement, a move against the sort of democratic thrust, as well as the violence and terrors, etc., uh, which will leave the revolution in a very different place uh, a year on, a year afterwards. Mm. So, um, was there a, a Robespierre conspiracy, as his opponents alleged, or or at the very least, was there one planned? Did, Rob did Robespierre have one planned for the Ninth of Thermidor? I think, um, you know, this is again a $64,000 question, but my sense is that he did have a clear idea of what he wanted to do, uh, but he didn't think he was going to have to do it on the Ninth of Thermidor. Mm -hmm. I think the plan, and it's, a, it's not a particularly long-term plan, I think he was seeing it as something which... Um, could happen in the next couple of weeks was that there would be a, a purge of the, of the National Assembly and his, an, his enemies, 
um, within the within the committee of public safety, the other committees of government would be removed. Uh, he would probably uh, have have greater power. I don't think he's necessarily seeing himself as a dictator, but he would have a, a position of considerable authority and power. Um, but he's not someone who leads a coup. You know, Robespierre. You know, he can't boil an egg. He certainly can't. You know, be a a street uh, fighter or a sort yeah. of coup leader. And essentially, and you know, I got this idea really by thinking about watching him, watching him over those previous weeks, but then thinking about how he had acted in other crisis moments of the revolution. In particular, there's one in middle of 1793 where he operates in a similar way and it leads to the purge of the National Assembly of, of moderate deputies called the Girondins. And basically what, it, what um, Robespierre sort of does is he, he sort of activates, he mobilizes the idea that this is the way to go. He's not the only one to do that. But if you like, increasingly um, uh, looks to the people of Paris uh, to, to act. You know, and they do act, and they, there will be a, a political purge on the 31st of May, 1793. I think that's what he's trying to do in on the night of Thermidor, but he doesn't think the people of Paris is ready yet. So what he goes in there on that day and thinks, well, I'll make this, you know, I made this statement the previous day, his ally will make a similar statement. Uh, they will sort of give the convention a chance to purge itself. But always at the back, he's sort of trying to think about uh, the people of Paris and mobilizing them to, to to force the hand of the National Assembly to to purge itself in that particular way. Not everyone, not every historian is going to believe uh, uh, me on this. You know, this is one of those very, very contested uh, things. But I think I do have a, a line of argument and a, that has considerable uh, plausibility. It also it also explains one of the things which is very striking about the day, which is that Robespierre is silenced. You know, I said earlier what he brings to the to the to revolution, but right, certainly right, the committee right, right. Of safety is a voice. Yeah. And it's a voice we never hear. You know, so the, the convention soon realized, you know, he's trying to speak, you know, he's trying to answer all his opponents. The the chair uh, the president of the assembly is just hammering down, you can't speak, you can't speak, not giving that and then he doesn't speak. He, I mean he goes by by the time he goes to the um, uh, city hall. He's a broken man. You know, he's got this big crowd of people around him. He, he doesn't really even make a speech there. He passes into another room and starts strategizing about what, what the way way forward. But he seems to be a, a broken. He just has not seen this coming. I think you know, in any way, he thought he was riding the crest of a wave, which would would you know move towards the purge of the of the of the convention and he's completely caught unawares by again the improvisational and the spontaneous nature of the day that we've been talking about yeah it's it's sort of almost a shell shock <laughs> or, or uh, something and then again by by the end of the i mean it's it's funny how little you hear of from Robespierre himself considering all of the uh, like you said all of the sources that are available for this day there's very little uh, actual dialogue that comes from him uh, in the course of the book, and then of course by the end of the night he's got a—I mean his jaw is basically, you know, blown apart by, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, by whether it's a suicide attempt or or the shot from Merida. Uh, uh, he can't speak at that point, and uh, he, you know, so it's uh, interesting again that you say that this person's so well known for their their oratory. Uh, is basically rendered mute throughout the entire day. 
Yeah, and, and the following day, one of the um, accounts that is given of, you know, he's, 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 you know, shot, whoever shot him, and then he's brought to the uh, National Convention uh, on a stretcher, and someone says he's, he's sort of, he can't speak because, you know, he's got big bandage around his mouth and he's, he can't articulate. Um, so he's completely silent, but he's reaching out for pen and paper. <laughs> and they won't let him write. <laughs> We're not giving him a pen and paper. Yeah. But that's last year. He can't speak. We're not going to let him write otherwise. So he's silenced uh, uh, completely. And yeah, this man who owes everything to his voice, you know, he's got where he is on the you know eighth and ninth of Thermidor by by the power and uh, you know the sort of uh, uh, force uh, political attractiveness you know uh, of, of his voice is completely silenced on the day yeah okay uh well we've already gone over an hour so um i guess that's probably a fairly decent place to leave it but i will ask you uh one last question it's one i ask uh, pretty much everybody that comes on the podcast uh, at the end of the podcast and that's a that's a what what would you like the audience to to get out of this book what's um What's the, what's the one thing you'd you'd like people, or you'd want people to take away from reading the book? Uh, yeah, good question, isn't it? Yes, I think probably um, yeah, linking up with some of the things I've been saying, that um, some days in history are dramatic, and there are ways of telling them which can uh, bring out that drama in a in a more effective way, and. Um, that, that they will look at the way in which I've told this story uh, uh, and think, yeah, that's quite a good way of doing things. And uh, that might work for other days as well. And sometimes causality and um, all the rest of it operates not in you know very long term drawn out ways, but actually in these very sort of sudden shifts in, uh, uh, in action and thought over the course of a single day. Great. OK, well, uh... Is there anything else uh, you want to plug before we go? Any any other uh, appearances coming up? Any other projects no, or uh, social media that, or anything? Immediate future. Obviously, bookshops, I hope, are stocking this book. So, yeah, please go out and buy it. All right, great. Well, uh, again, uh, the book is 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris, The Fall of Robespierre. Or, excuse me, The Fall of Robespierre, 24 Hours in Revolutionary Paris. Excuse me, I was looking at the – I was reading down from the title. But, um it's a this is a tremendous book this is uh history uh historical writing at its finest it's really uh a great uh like gripping narrative um uh just bouncing back and forth from all these different perspectives uh in paris throughout the day uh, uh you know tremendously momentous day and a day that's uh <laughs> you know as we talked about that's just sort of the day is just up in the air pretty much through uh, through most of the day, um, and it's just interesting to see uh, how every uh, all these different people responded to the events during that day and uh, what happened and what didn't happen and why it didn't happen and why it did happen, all that sort of stuff. And a really, really remarkable book, and I highly recommend it to everybody. And uh, uh, again, the author of the book is uh, Dr. Colin Jones, and uh, Dr. Jones... Thank you again very, very much for coming on the podcast to discuss the book with me. Thanks I, really, I really had a good time. Right. Uh, really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, again, if you like this podcast, please uh, make sure you leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if you have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can reach me at tbenson at heartland.org. That's uh, T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. 
And uh, we also have our Twitter account for the podcast, so you can reach out to us there if you have any questions or you know, concerns or whatnot. You can you know, give us a follow, send us a DM, all that sort of stuff. Um, so you can reach out to us at, what is our Twitter handle? At, I always forget this, at illbooks, so at uh, I-L-L books. So reach out for us there. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. So uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Uh, love you, Mom. Love you, Robbie. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>